yeah, like, yeah, it's all about perspective, I guess. And you're right. Yeah. Like when we're in that, in sort of the deeper area of the like depression phase or the anxiety phase or the negative phase, like the deeper place, it's a lot harder for the positive shit to penetrate. Yeah. So that makes I sense. do feel like this year is like particularly hard to get mm -hmm. away from a bit, like to, I don't know, enjoy the nice stuff. Um, yeah. But it also can be a hormonal. If you're like PMSing, you're not going to be. <laughs> going to be like fuck this. Oh yeah, there's no way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah my therapist was like, uh, like last session, she was like, um, after ten minutes of me talking, she's like, "Are you like in that time of the month?" <laughs> and I'm like, "No." <laughs> yeah, I know. I always want to say no, even though sometimes I am. Yeah. It's like that's the thing that our society and most men don't understand is like when women go through PMS, it's like we have a mental breakdown. It's literally we have a mental breakdown every single month and it takes a lot of self-awareness, a lot of work to be able to do anything, to be able to go grocery shopping, to go to work, to answer an email, to answer a phone call or text message. It takes so much to not like fucking go insane i don't think people understand that they don't understand. yeah it's they don't so understand and all they want to do is make fun of us for it be like is it that time of the month because that's easy for them but it's not easy for us for people who have uterus who have a uterus and who go through this every single month it's not easy it's very very difficult and painful yeah. and i feel and like it's very mm. when you forget there it's like the, you forget that it's a cycle thing and you're like yes huh, well my boobies hurt yeah huh, and it's why not i want to kill everyone <laughs> <laughs> and it happens so fast right it's like it's like okay like my let's say period last my period lasts about five days after five days it's over right and then i start to feel better one week passes that week is good second week comes and it's like okay third week it's suddenly it starts again and then that and then the week after you get it and so those two weeks you're fucked so technically women only get two weeks out of the month where they feel really great you know what i mean yeah and i just i feel like all of us should get two weeks off, off. every single month yeah <laughs> paid leave paid sick leave every single month yeah we should we deserve it it's like if society wants us to have babies and take care of them, it's like, give us two weeks off every single month. The moment we start menstruating, that should be a law, a universal law. Yeah, I think law. We're, we're really close to get that. <laughs> <laughs> think All about right. how the conversation is going. Yeah, yeah, we'll go into it. <laughs> All right, let me ask you some flashcard questions. <laughs> oh yeah, what is this for? What am I doing? What's oh, happening? Yeah. <laughs> This is a show called Coffee Prince, and uh, it came out, I think, 2007, um, and it's considered, like, a positive queer show for, like, Korean TV dramas, um, and, yeah, it is, it's got some positive queerness, but it's also got some negative queerness, so um, it's a complicated show. I'm glad it's out there, but, you know, all it does is make us realize that um, we can celebrate some queer happiness, and there's a lot of queer progressive work to do so let me ask you some flashcard questions based on this show okay let's say you're a young woman in her early 20s and you have short hair right oh my god <laughs> and your name is Unchan, Chan Ko Unchan. okay you have short hair you wear men's clothing 
and everybody confuses you for a man, all right? Mm -hmm. They all think you're a boy. You mm -hmm. live with a younger sister who is in high school and you have a single mother and your father died when you were a teenager. And you meet this man named Che Hangyeol. He's a very rich brat, like typical rich boy brat, okay? And uh, he, that guy, he keeps getting set up by his rich grandmother on blind dates with other mm -hmm. rich women because, you know, they want to make their rich dynasty a bigger dynasty. And he wants to get out of these blind dates by tricking women into thinking that he's gay. And he asks you to be his partner in crime. What do you do? But I'm a female, right? Yeah. He doesn't know that, though. Oh. Mm -hmm. mm, what, a what a twist. <laughs> mm -hmm. And how do I feel about him? You just met him. He's just some rich, snobby Is he going to asshole. give me money? Is yes. there money involved? He pays okay. you per, per date. Oh, and I need this money. Yes, you do. I need it. Mm -hmm. Great. So this works out perfectly. <laughs> so you say to? yes. I will say yes, but do I have to do sexual stuff? Ah, good question. Because that costs extra. <laughs> <laughs> he pays you based on like pats, like touch on the head or touch on the shoulder. Um, he does kiss you too at one point. With like, Tammy? As a no, 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 no. As a joke, <laughs> as a joke, like he's like very happy that he got out of one date. So he grabs your face and he kisses you on the mouth, like really hard, like just as a quote unquote joke. And he pays you for all of these physical touches. Yeah. Wow. What a weird thing. And then they fall in love because that's what happens. <laughs> <laughs> She's yeah. like, he kissed me as a joke. I love him. <laughs> He kissed me as a joke, but I was not joking. <laughs> In my mind, I married him. <laughs> okay, so uh, you'd say yes. You would go with it? Well, apparently I need the money. And I already had the look that he's going for. And he's going to get a surprise when he sees right, right, my yeah. pants. But <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. I hear he has what he's looking for. It's like you're his style. You're his taste. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's a pig, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is. He is. Rich people are pigs. Okay, great. So, question number two. You're Hangyeo, this rich guy now, okay? Oh, wait, no, no, I'm sorry. You're you're still in Chan. You're still the, the tomboy. Okay, so Hangyeo, the rich guy, he doesn't know that you're a woman, right? He thinks you're a man. You just don't correct him. He just assumes you're a boy. You never said you're a boy. You just don't correct him. And he treats you like a punk kid, younger brother. You know, he's like, ah, like very bro-y. And he tells you that he inherited a coffee shop mm -hmm. and he revamps it and he calls it Coffee Prince and he needs to hire a team to work there. But he's only going to hire men because it's called a co Coffee Prince, right? And you want the job. You really need it. But he's only hiring men. And you really, you really, at this point, as an employee, you really need to decide whether or not you want to tell him you're a woman or a man. What do you do? Well, I will take the job. And then in some point, after running the shit out of this coffee place, and everyone will be like, this is the best place I ever have coffee. I will be like, look at my breast. <laughs> oh, uh, my God. <laughs> Jesus. So you just flash yeah. him? No, well, I, I wait for him to tell me, hey, you're being the best employee. Thank God that you have a penis. <laughs> uh, and um, I, could, I couldn't do this without you. 
and Vengara only hire men and blah 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 more piggy sexy shit and I will be like <laughs> I will be like oh cuckoo <laughs> I like how you call sexist men piggies I think that's such a cute way to describe them you yeah. sexist piggy i <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, I didn't quite understand your answer, but sure. Yeah, let's go with it. Well, the thing is, I will do a great job, and then he... I mean, I will do a great job, and uh, he will be okay. surprised by it. Yeah. And then I will expose my genitalia to him, mm-hmm. and he will be like... It wouldn't change his mind. He will still be against me because I'm a woman, but I prove a point to someone. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so it's Maybe more about... It's more about showing that women are just as capable as men. Got it. Because Got apparently it. he doesn't know that. What year is this, this TV series? 2007. Oh 2007. I know. Not that long ago, man. Okay, great. I understand now. Okay. All right. So you're still in Chan. And while you're working with this guy, Han Gyal, you, of course, start to develop feelings for him, right? Of course. But Han Gyal, again, Han Gyal thinks you're a man. In fact... He really likes you, and he treats you like a close sibling. And one day, he tells you very seriously. He says, you're gay, right? But I'm not. But I want to be close to you. Let's be blood brothers, okay? And yeah, and he fucking pierces your ear. It's really fucking weird. You really want to confess your love to this guy, but you're stuck in this weird predicament because you've been lying to him for months and you feel guilty. What do you do? I don't get like the, the piercing in the ear. Is that... <laughs> it's because he has an earring and he wants you to have a matching earring. But it's a bit, it's a it's bit also, creepy. It is. It's a little <laughs> creepy. It's absolutely creepy. I agree. Hmm. The whole thing is creepy, actually. It is. It's really fucked up. I can't believe it was in 2007. <laughs> yeah, I mean, rich men, rich men, they'll just, they'll fucking go all the way. They don't care. They have nothing to lose. Oh, you know what do I do? Um, I will create an alter ego. Hmm. I, will, I will say that, oh, my twin sister is coming. <laughs> <laughs> this is very so opera. Uh, so yeah. I will yeah. be a fake twin sister so i cannot like, stop lying apparently i have a problem yeah <laughs> so, uh, so i would just like be like and then he will have the same feelings but now to a girl <laughs> and then and then every everything will be weird when he's like hey we should invite invite your brother to the wedding and i'll be like uh-uh <laughs> i didn't think of that <laughs> Okay, so you would write a whole new script, basically. Yeah. (laughs) Didn't they do that in the series? I feel like it's a great idea. They didn't do the twin sister thing. I like the twin sister thing, though. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it really raises the stakes. I mean, that goes, like, fucking crazy level. I love it. Yes. All right. Okay, so let's say you're... What? What? Then I fake my... I, I fake the accident of my brother... And then I just leave life as a woman. Your brother had an that accent? I was already. <laughs> no, Wait, she, men she, have she, an accent different from women? No, accident. Accident. Sorry, oh, I accident, have an accident. Accident. <laughs> yes. Oh, so you kill him off. Wow. You're crazy. And then at some point, he's like, wait, but you also have a piercing. And I'm like, oh, no, he's fine out. You know, that's how. <laughs> wow. 
I think you should have written this show. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, great. All right, all right, all right. So let's say you're Hangyeol now. You're the rich guy, okay? You're the rich guy. You're very strangely attracted to this Eunchan guy, okay? But you know you're not gay. You've never had gay feelings towards any man before in your life, okay? But you're very weirdly drawn to him, and he's a man. What do you do? Uh, well, I guess if I was this guy, I would fuck a woman to feel <laughs> empowered. I, this guy I or like, you? <laughs> I'm channeling this guy. I think I will rent a boat, a big yacht. No, I'm pretty sure my family has a yacht. Forget about that. <laughs> and I will just invite a bunch of, I want to call bitches because I feel that that's how he talks about women. Um, and a bunch of bitches. Oh, I can invite Leo DiCaprio. I don't know if he was doing that as well. In that, Yeah. <laughs> And then I will fuck a bunch, and then I will do all that, and I will be like, oh, I feel much better now. And then, you know, yeah. she comes along, yeah, the the boy that I'm trying to, and then I'm like, oh, no, I still want to suck his dick. <laughs> so you did all that yacht renting and fucking women for nothing. Yeah, and then he's like, oh boy. <laughs> yeah, it's like I ate out all these bitches, but technically I wanted your cock in my mouth. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh, it would be great if we have like a sauna scene mm -hmm. when he, mm. she's like, oh no, he's going to find out. And he's like, oh. I want to see his dick, you know? Jesus. <laughs> okay. Does that happen? Uh. No, that's in your fantasy, oh, my friend. Okay. <laughs> I love my seriousness. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's so good. I want to see it. Okay, so let's say you're a man. <clears throat> you're a guy named Che Hansung. You're a different guy. You're this big shot music producer, okay? And you used to date a really hot woman named Yuju, who is a big shot painter, super famous, okay? And she broke up with you years ago moved to New York to live with some other guy, some other rich guy. And one day, she just shows up in Seoul at your house, and she says she wants to be with you again. What do you do? <laughs> Why does she want to be with me? <laughs> just changed her mind. Felt like she missed you. Oh, mm -hmm. oh she has something. She has something's happening. <laughs> What's happening? Am I a good person? You're a really nice guy, yeah. And when this woman left you, you were really heartbroken and, you know, angry. Well, I guess yeah. if I'm a nice guy, I guess I'm a bit dumb, dumb. No, but do I love myself? Do I love a little bit myself? <laughs> I don't know. Ask yourself that as, as this character. That's a good question. Do I love myself? Wow. So profound. You're so profound today. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Um, hmm. I don't know. I just feel like I just I can I I cannot stop picturing Mariah Carey. <laughs> <laughs> okay. For for some reason, I'm just like picturing her, <laughs> and I don't want to go back to her. <laughs> <laughs> so I will say no. <laughs> I'm not going back. <laughs> Perfect answer. Okay. 
Yeah, yeah. This bitch is being a Mariah. Yeah. <laughs> she can go fuck herself, all right? No, I think Mariah is great. If she's watching this. Oh, my God. I love Mariah. <laughs> but, you know, Mariah's a diva. Yeah. Mariah, if you're listening to this, you're a diva. Okay. Yeah, no, but she's, uh, someone asked her a question. It's like, so you had a mental breakdown? And she's like, no, I had a diva moment. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Amazing answer. So every month for two weeks, we all bitches have diva moments. That's all it is. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. you use a diva cup. Ah! <laughs> the full story. It's a full very circle of... <laughs> Very, very good. I love that. I love that. Yes. Okay. So yeah. you're still this music producer guy, okay? Mm-hmm. This this young woman named Unchan, <clears throat> the the woman that everybody thinks is a man. This very cute young lady named Unchan. She delivers milk to your house every morning. She's really cute. <laughs> She's really fun. Really lovely. Okay. And you start developing feelings for her. But your girlfriend, Yuju, that painter, Mariah lady, she tells you, she sees what's happening and she tells you not to go too far with her, okay? And one day you end up kissing Unchan on the lips and your girlfriend catches you in the act. What do you do? Well, I tell myself I'm an idiot. <laughs> also, also, it, was it um, a consensual kiss? Because ah, very she's good. like delivering milk. Yeah, she's doing cool. milk. She's just doing a job. She's just being mm. nice, giving me my milk, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, ooh, <laughs> 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 milk. <laughs> I don't think he's a nice guy. <laughs> You're right. He's not. He's he's a a, a sh- like wolf in sheep's clothing. That's what he is. Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, I know those people. And and the kiss was not consensual. Very good question. He just. <gasps> forced kissed his face when she was least expecting it he just forced his face onto her face and smooched her and she ran, out of, this, ran out of there i think these two women should beat him up <laughs> together yeah and leave him like on a i don't know therapy board <laughs> or something <laughs> And then throw the meal at him. <laughs> <laughs> Drown him that? in a bath of milk. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Great. I like that answer. All right. Thanks. All right. Final question. You are Hangyeol now, the, the the CEO guy, the president guy. All right. The douchebag, the rich douchebag. Oh. Your girlfriend, no, I'm sorry, your friend, a friend of yours, tells you that Unchan is actually a woman. And that she lied to you about her gender for months. Meanwhile, you went through all this mental and emotional agony, questioning your sexuality because of your attraction towards Inchan, questioning everything about yourself, and willing to still pursue this person as a close friend, quote unquote, even though you thought she was a man. And you feel so betrayed. What do you do? Well... I feel like, uh, I mean, this is not what's going to happen, but I feel like in those moments, he should have a bunch of flashbacks of all the times that he called her with, like, masculine pronouns or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I would be like, oh, she didn't lie to me. She just she just was really nice and agree with me. Mm. <laughs> She's the best. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, so you would you would get yourself over it by doing this positive reinforcement thing. Yeah, but that's not going to happen. He's going to go to her and be like, "You little bitch." <laughs> She's like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Great answer. All right. Thank you, Julieta. Welcome to K Drama School. I'm your host, Grace Jung, and class is now in session. So Wednesday, September 1st, I will be at the Yard Theater, 7 p.m. I'm going to be there in an unusual way, but my presence will be there, I assure you, okay? It's the Cold Ass Fuck Comedy Show, which is a variety show that I am co-producing and co-hosting with Kristen Lundberg. And if you don't know who Kristen Lundberg is, look her up. She is epically hilarious. She is brilliant. She's genius. And this is a comedy variety show that we're going to be co-hosting every month. So first Wednesday of every month. So we're going to do it again in October, again in November. And then we'll see how it goes from there. But it's going to be a really fun show. Uh, It's going to include stand-up comedy, drag performances. We're going to have clowns, but not the scary kinds, okay? We're going to have musicians. And Kristen brings an ice sculpture to every show because she is an ice sculptor. That's what she does. And at the end of the show, everybody gets to smash the ice sculpture on the ground. And it's a very cathartic feeling. It's awesome. So please go to the Art Theater Wednesday. This is in LA, okay? Wednesday, 7 p.m. And if you're looking for the Eventbrite ticket link, it's on my website at hj.com. Okay. On Thursday, September 2nd, I will be at the Arcadia Bar in Astoria, Queens, 8 p.m. It's a bar show. It's free. So if you're in New York, please feel free to come. It should be a good time. On Friday, September 3rd, I will be at the Tiny Cupboard in Brooklyn, 7.30. I want to read you a fan letter that I received from Dr. Mansa. Dear Dr. Jung, I have been listening to episode 32 of your podcast on Reply 1988, and I am quite excited. I enjoyed your conversation about race. Jovan Hutch is great. I didn't know about him prior to seeing him on your show. I am a 67-year-old Ghanaian woman, a former professor of sociology, now retired, and I discovered K-drama by chance at the beginning of the pandemic when I subscribed to Netflix. I am totally in love with K-drama. I'm into rom-coms and romantic dramas. It is interesting how K-drama is selling Korea to the rest of the world. I have heard there are several Korea files in Ghana as a result, but I don't know any. I don't care for K pop, but I do appreciate the original soundtracks of some of the shows that I watch. I wish you would look at the more recent dramas like Dear My Friends, Nabilera, or Love Alarm. I also wonder what you think about So Not Worth It. I did not like Han Hyun Min's character. I think he is sweet and charming, but why did they have to make his mother so unconventional and make him poor? Is it because he is Black Korean? I would be happy if you discussed that show one day. By the way, I went to university in Germany in the 70s. Berlin was always a cool place. I did my magister in Heidelberg and PhD in Frankfurt. 
I went to Ghana in 1985 after my studies and taught at a university here for 30 years. I had a good Korean friend during my time in Germany who I have lost touch with. I have searched high and low on the internet but cannot find her. She told me about the student uprisings and other things. Anyway, I hope to visit Seoul, Busan, and Jeju Island when the pandemic is over, but I'm a little wary because I'm a black ajumma. Thank you for your podcasts and everything. With respect, Dr. Mansa. Thank you, Professor Mansa, for your email. And I appreciate you mentioning the show, Dear My Friends and Navilera. I think those are really good shows to cover because they discuss aging in a very frank manner and the difficulty that a lot of elderly Korean folks face in modern Korean society. I'll be covering Dear My Friends very, very soon. It's one of my favorite shows and it's written by one of my favorite Korean drama writers. So I appreciate you mentioning it. I think it's really awesome that you got to travel to Berlin in the 1970s. Um, I am a huge fan of Berlin as a city. I just finished Ingmar Bergman's autobiography uh, who talks about living in Berlin back in the 1940s, and he paints a really grotesque picture of the city. But I truly love Berlin. I spent 2018 and 2019 there, and I have some really fond memories of that city. I made many great friends in Berlin, and that includes Julieta de Geze, who just did the flashcard series. The student uprisings in Korea in the 1970s were pretty huge, and the Korean government killed a lot of their own people for dissenting against the military dictatorship, which was ruling the nation at the time. So even though South Korea was technically a republic, a so-called you know, democratic nation, after the Korean War, it was run by dictators for many decades. Honestly, like it... it never stopped really honestly i mean it's a lot better now but like even up until the 90s it was still kind of bad so all those student protesters back then were really important people but the unfortunate thing is that all those young student protesters from back then are now the ruling elite in south korea okay many of them abandoned their beliefs in democracy a lot of them live comfortable bourgeois lives they have a lot of institutional power they have money they have families okay and that's these are things that make people lean very conservative right they're on the political right okay so this just goes to show that all of us are susceptible to change right so we need to remain consistently self-aware we have to make good choices in life and we have to stay on the path towards you know healing goodness wisdom all that shit right that's that's what we need to do okay and those are the things that society tells us to remain resistant to so we have to keep I don't know, reading and acquiring more knowledge and talking to people, acquire more wisdom, all that, all that stuff, right? Okay. Today's show is Coffee Prince. It's a 2007 drama written by Yi Sun Mi, who is actually a romance novelist. Okay. So Yi Sun Mi wrote about 10 works of fiction. They're mostly romantic comedies. And this is the most famous and well known of her. Uh, works of fiction because it became a hit TV show in 2007. The show is also unique in that a Korean woman directed it. Okay, Very few Korean dramas are directed by women. They're almost always directed by men, although the majority of them are written by women, which of course is now changing, right? Now that, you know, South Korea is like being sought after for all their content, like all these fucking network executives are trying to hire male screenwriters over 
female TV writers who were there, <laughs> right? So that's starting to change. So Yoon Jung is the director of this drama. And when I was living in New York in 2011, I recall some of my MFA candidate friends at Columbia University's film program telling me that they were in classes with her or meetings with her. So she was getting her MFA at Columbia Film School. Um, I believe she was getting her master's, yeah. So she was around. She was in New York. So that's kind of cool. Coffee Prince is the show that made Yoon Eun-hae and Kong Yoo very, very famous. Yoon Eun-hae was already kind of famous before because she's a K-pop star, right? She's a K-pop idol. She was part of the group Baby Vox, okay? So if you grew up in the 90s, early 2000s, you would know who Baby Vox is. And she appeared in a lot of studio Korean variety game shows with other K-pop stars in the late 90s and early 2000s. So she was kind of a household name already. And Kong Yoo was not as famous as Yoon Eun-hae, but this show made him a Hallyu star, right? He was all over the world, all over the place. And I mean, that's the reason why Goblin is such a big hit, right? It's because Kung Yu was this household name. Coffee Prince is most commonly cited as the queer K-drama. And if you listen to episode 12 of this podcast, you'll hear me saying that Coffee Prince is indeed a queer show, but there are many other shows that have outqueered this one in the last few years. Okay, so Coffee Prince is a good text to look at as a queer show for queer pleasure, but it's also a queer text that creates queer upset. If any of you are into queer theory and feminist theory, I'd strongly recommend the book uh, Female Masculinity by Jack Halberstam, which they wrote when they were still going by the name Judith Halberstam. And it's a classic text on how to read queered female portrayals in film and literary texts. And here's a good quote by Halberstam. The tomboy movie threatened an unresolved gender crisis and protected or predicted butch adulthoods. There is always the dread possibility, in other words, that the tomboy will not grow out of her butch state and will never become a member of the wedding. Tomboys do not bond. They do not rebel. They do not learn. They do not like themselves. And perhaps most importantly, they do not like each other. So... Halberstam asks, where are the contemporary examples of tomboy films today? And it's hard to find them, right? But we increasingly find non-gender binary characters in films and TV shows in Hollywood today, right? This book was written over 20 years ago, back in 1998. And I'd say that Coffee Prince in part answers this question posed by Halberstam about 10 years after this book, Female Masculinity, is published. So you have Ko Eun-chan, who is a young woman in her early 20s. She has short hair. She dresses in loose clothing. She frequently gets, gets misconstrued as a man, but she usually never corrects anybody who calls her a man, okay? Anybody who assumes that she's a boy, she doesn't correct them. She has a single mother at home and a younger sister in high school who she takes care of by working multiple part-time jobs every single day. Okay, she is the family kajang, and kajang means head of household in Korean. It's usually tied to this patriarchal figurehead, like the father who is often looked upon as the breadwinner, right? But in Inchan's case, there is no father because he died when she was a teenager. So she took on this onus as the kajang, right? This role in part is what makes Ko Chan so masculine. So we see that gender 
is a social construct and a performance through Unchan's character, right? This is where Judith Butler's theory on gender performance comes in. She wrote Gender Trouble, which is a very influential book that came out in 1990. I recommend it to anybody who's interested in reading the fundamentals of gender theory and queer theory. But we can see through Unchan that gender is not only a costume through her clothing and haircut, but it's also a performance, right? Unchan's constantly channeling masculinity because of her association with breadwinning as a male role. So there's some internalized sexism there, but I can also look at this another way. For instance, when we look at pictures of Unchan as a kid, when her father is still alive, she was dressed like a boy. Her hair was short like a boy. And the name Unchan is a very gender neutral name. In Korean, it's not, it's neither feminine nor masculine. Unchan is a gender neutral name. And Unchan as a person was a tomboy regardless of the Kajang status. So before her father even passed away, she had this Kajang status. And it's interesting to hear how her younger sister addresses Unchan, right? Calls Unchan oppa a lot, right? So that all of this sort of demonstrates that um, gender is a social construct, it's a performance, it's a costume. Gender is not dictated by genitalia essentially. But what happens? What happens? Unchan falls in love with a man, right? And this makes her change. So when she finally comes out as a woman to the man she loves, who thought she was a guy, she dresses in feminine clothes, she sheds a lot of tears. And then Unchan's mom, when she sees Unchan crying over the sky, she says, oh, my daughter is all grown up and she's crying over boys. Okay. So this idea of the tomboy growing up or maturing means that she is done being that unconventional deviant. Okay. She is no longer going to be this non-conforming, you know, androgynous figure. She's going to become the typical feminine being that is tied to materialism, aesthetics, whatnot. Okay. So the threat that was posed against society by this tomboy is mediated by the constant potential that the tomboy will eventually grow up and become a woman, not a tom man or not a butch lesbian, okay? So if you're watching this series, you'll see that that's exactly what ends up happening to Unchan, okay? So this is where we notice queer upset. Why does female masculinity have to become erased? Why can't it remain consistent? Unchan ultimately comes out as a woman and Unchan is in love with a man. So we have heteronormativity, right? Had the show allowed Unchan to remain a tomboy, it would have leaned a lot closer towards queer liberation and queer pleasure because ultimately there's nothing wrong with being a lesbian or trans, right? The other major queerness from this show is how Gongyu's character, Hangyeol, falls in love with Unchan while assuming that Unchan is a man. So Hangya initially treats Inchan like a younger brother, calls him a punk, teases him, wrestles him, right? But then Hangya starts to develop feelings for Inchan, and he starts questioning his own sexuality, which he had never done before in his life. So we see queer potential for queer pleasure here, but the queer upset occurs when Hangya goes to a psychiatrist, believing that his gay love is a mental disability, right? And the show's mise en scène. In that scene when he's at the doctor's office is very negative 
And it not only is homophobic, but it stigmatizes mental illness, which is already a big issue in South Korea. This show came out in 2007, so it's a little bit dated, but I don't think that excuses the homophobia and the ableism that the show entails. There's a scene when Han Gyeol says to Eun Chan after wrestling her in bed in this playful fight or whatever, he stops and very intensely says to her, you're gay, right? But I'm not but let's take this as far as we can, right? So he's suggesting queer love here. Instead of having sex with Eun-chan, though, what han Kyo, what han does is he pierces Eun-chan's ear to match his own earring. And he tells Eun-chan that they can be blood brothers, okay? This scene is highly suggestive of queer physical intimacy. It's like a gay cherry popping, right? Also, the single earring carries some queer weight as well. It's a deliberate choice on han part to use their brotherhood as a masquerade for their queer love, okay? I felt like this scene was the queerest scene of all. Like, I haven't seen a scene like this in Korean TV dramas that sort of outqueers this particular scene, although there are other narratives of queerness in contemporary K-dramas that I would say outqueers this one. Okay, so today I talked to a former undergraduate professor of mine, Dr. Mark Hussey, who is now Professor Emeritus of Pace University's English Department as of tomorrow, I believe. Dr. Hussey is a world-renowned wolf scholar, and funny story about that is when I told a friend that my college professor is a wolf scholar, he was like, oh my god, that's so awesome that he studies wolves. And I was like, no, no, I mean like Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf is a very influential feminist figure for me personally because I read her book, Three Guineas, when I was in undergrad. And it's a book that woke up the feminist in me. So it's a very critical book and she's an important figure to me. Dr. Hussey edited and annotated the Virginia Woolf series published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. He wrote the foreword to the book On Being Ill, written by Wolf, which was published along with notes from Sick Rooms, written by Wolf's mother, Julia Stephen, who was a nurse and who died when Wolf was very young. And Dr. Hussey recently wrote a biographical book on Clive Bell entitled Clive Bell and the Making of Modernism, which was published by Bloomsbury Press, which is very fitting. Clive Bell was part of the Bloomsbury group, which included figures like Virginia Woolf, like Vanessa Bell, like Leonard Woolf, like E.M. Forster and others. And they were like this literary group slash artistic salon. They were just like a group that hung out and like shared ideas and created theories and talked a lot. I mean, it sounds awesome. I, I wish I wish we had more of those things today, but I don't know. Unfortunately, we just have Twitter and Instagram and other bullshit. Clive Bell was an art critic and a painter, and he was Virginia Woolf's brother-in-law and husband to Woolf's sister, Vanessa Bell. And there is no deep dive biographical research text on Clive Bell. So Dr. Hussey wrote this book, and it's out now, and you can go and find it. Dr. Hussey is not only a great scholar and researcher, but he's also a really great teacher. And I congratulate him for officially retiring as of tomorrow. And I want to extend not only my congratulations on completing this milestone and closing this chapter, but also for beginning a new one as a full-time researcher and scholar. I wish you the best of luck. I do have to mention that the professors at Pace University in the English department are pretty much responsible for you know, me being a writer today, honestly. Like 15 years ago when I was... Uh, taking poetry classes and essay classes and writing a lot and reading a lot in college. Like a lot of these professors gave me the feedback and the encouragement and support that I needed 
you know, in order to really, um, I don't know, muster the courage to be to become a writer, to become an artist. Okay, so I think um, our teachers are invaluable in that respect, and we should really um, take the time to appreciate them and offer them our respect and recognition. Right, because good teachers are not only life changing and life affirming, but I would say they're also life saving. Like I was supremely depressed when I was in college. I was thinking about suicide every single day and I was drinking a lot. I was drinking almost every single night. The only thing that I had full control over was my studies somehow. Like I really stayed on top of that. And the professors, their compassion, their patience and their willingness to be a good mentor to me, like that's really what kept me surviving during that period. So um, I would say all the academic achievements that I've made and the creative writing achievements I have made are in part um, due to their fine work as teachers. So shout out to Pace University's English department. There have been a lot of those like Zoom conferences, Zoom. I mean, what do you think of that? Do you prefer the Zoom conferences or do you prefer the in-person ones? Well, I prefer the in-person one when it means you're not going to die from COVID. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But actually, yeah. the Wolf Conference, which <laughs> last year it was scheduled to be in South Dakota. Yeah. In June, so it was canceled, clearly. Gosh, um, yeah. Or postponed. And then this year it was on Zoom, and it was r- remarkable. I mean, it yeah. was on Zoom, but it still was a full four-day conference, mm-hmm. and everyone felt great. And we had mm-hmm. people from all over the world. And yeah. uh, it just, I mean, apart from at the end of the day, wanting to just go out for a drink with everyone. Right. just had a really good energy. And um, I think by now right. we're also used to it. I think so too. I think um, the Zoom conferences are going to continue. Because I, I was able to participate in a workshop in Australia via Zoom. You know, yeah. so I think that's changing a I mean, lot that of things. that is the great thing. about there was I was doing a session and I said, Good afternoon. And then immediately the chat filled up with like, well, actually, it's early morning here in mm. South Africa and like here in Australia. Right. Like <laughs> right, right, right. But it was, uh, but that is, I mean, like I zoomed into people's classes for in California, right. which I would mm-hmm. never have been able to, you know, do before. Yes. So that's one silver lining. That is. And it's a big one because it also has to do with like equity too, you know, like mm-hmm. right. I, you know, Per conference, I'll spend a minimum, minimum of a thousand dollars, minimum. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, uh, you know, can I go to like as many conferences as I yeah. would like? You know, yeah. it's so, actually been the the people. Well, the main person who was organizing the conference, and then three other people got together, and they every month they have what they call a wolf salon, and mm. it's and it's kind of structured in the sense that it will sometimes have a, a reading in common or a couple of presenters, but it's otherwise very open. And that's been amazing because it's two hours on a Friday yeah. and people from about probably 16 or 17 countries sign in and wow. it's usually about 70 to a hundred people. And we just, it's just a really great energy, really, it's really yeah. sustaining for a lot of people. Like, you know, someone in Brazil who said her, her country's in such a terrible state, it's been just great to kind of, check in every so often with yes. other people. So, and I, yeah. yeah, you're right. It's, it's uh, enabled many more people to participate than mm-hmm. in normal times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was able to sit in like in a lot of those things during the 
well, we're still in the pandemic, but especially last year when, you know, I felt really cooped up and, you know, intellectually kind of like not stimulated at all. And, you know, sometimes you get so tired and depressed, you don't even want to sit and open a book, you know, you just kind of want to hear people talk. And um, yeah, like I got to hear a lot of really amazing people speak on really astounding projects. And that's been the upside of this. Thing. Yeah, and actually, I mean, a lot of cultural institutions like museums did amazing programming during the mm-hmm. lockdown. So mm-hmm. you could, you could like, there was something, I think it was the Frick in New York did cocktails mm-hmm. with a curator every uh-huh. month. And you could just yeah. like, sign in and someone would be talking about a piece of art. And that, like you said, it, it, it was so isolating for so many people that it was great to even virtually just feel like there are people out there who are yeah interested in ideas <laughs> yeah yeah it it i mean that's like the this is the future that you know so many people had predicted right like in sci-fi <laughs> or in like a dooms oh, yeah. like a doomsday philosophical way like but um there is there is an upside to it as you know there there are also downsides to it like zoom bombing has been you know fucking horrific and mm. um like Zoom stand-up comedy has also been horrific. Like it's like what? Like, oh, that must know? be really difficult. Yeah, I forgot that it's, you were doing that. Yeah, it's it's another thing. And you can only hear one person at a time. Yeah, or they all just mute all their mics, and you just have to deal with uh, just talking to yourself. Except <laughs> there are people tuning it, so yeah, it, a laugh track. <laughs> yeah, like I don't know. We've become socially. Um, I, I guess, you know, I'll just say we've expanded socially or like our social things that felt weird before are now like, uh, like an everyday thing, you know, like oh, yeah. when I, let me ask you, when you were buying that headset, for instance, you know, like, did you go through any kinds of hurdles mentally to buy that? Or was it just like, oh, I just need this as a practical purchase? I think it was the... Yeah, I mean, I, I suddenly, like everyone, the the lockdown began kind of right at our spring break. So uh-huh. I, you know, I was teaching for six weeks in the classroom, and then there was a lot of talk, and then spring break happened, and Pace sent an email saying, you know, we're going to extend work remotely for one week, and then we'll all come back. Uh-huh. And I remember I emailed the president, and I said, okay, so what is it you know that none of the other universities in the whole tri-state area know because they're all shutting down for the rest of the year? And then, like, of course, they said, yes, we're shut down. So I taught just with my laptop. Yes. And my, you know, it was really a mess. I mean, it was it was okay, but it was kind of on the, on the fly. And then, yeah. and then I thought, oh, I should really get myself set up properly. So I, like, reorganized my whole office because – I've actually changed the orientation of my office. So I have this nice book background, mm-hmm. whereas before it was like strewn with mess and my armchair and a window and I had no <laughs> idea what to do. So then I, and I just went yeah. online and ordered this thing. And then yeah. I remember I, my, my wife's been working remotely. So I said, Oh, I just want can I do a test zoom with you? Yeah. And I said, I just want tell me if there's any difference when I'm using the headset. And then she said, you mean to tell me your students have been suffering through the, without the headset for all um, the rest of that semester because she said it is like night and day with mm-hmm. the microphone was so much better um, yeah 
And my computer is weird because the um, I think the camera. I'm on my. I have a webcam now, but my. Wow. Oh yeah, my camera. My camera. I have a Dell laptop, and the camera. Oh my gosh. I can't remember where they usually are on the top or the bottom of the lid, but mine's the opposite place. So it was. I had to like. I had this box of CDs and a dictionary, and it was like precariously balanced right. on my desk so that yes. I could like be in the in the frame yeah. for those six weeks of the spring 2020 semester. <laughs> but the students were great because, you know, everyone was going through the same thing. But um, no, I didn't really have any angst about it, but I just, I thought, now, of course, I realize I should have AirPods, but I am very <laughs> anti-Apple, so I don't have any Apple products. That's why you use a Dell, right? Yeah. Okay, um, yeah. It's like, you know, I prefer a stick shift. I like a PC. It's like... I like to know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. No, I see. I never learned how to drive stick shift. I only learned automatic because the car my parents had was an automatic. So whenever I travel, it's like a nightmare because everywhere else in the world, they use stick shift and they right. use military time and they use Celsius. Yeah. So it's like. Oh, I know. I have no idea what that is. Yeah. I was just, like, I just get emails from friends in the UK saying, God, it is like sweltering here. It's 28 degrees. <laughs> you mean it's below freezing? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. No, it's 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 a mind fuck. But yeah, there are there are advantages to knowing how to drive stick shift. Um. So anyway, congratulations on like being a retired professor, a professor. <laughs> 18 days. Emeritus. 18 yeah. days. Wow. I mean, but you're. Are you still teaching? It's August. You're not teaching. No, no, no. Yeah. I, yeah. But I'm so, 18 days until I'm officially retired. Oh, really? So they the count you through month. the summer. Wow. Um, it's like August 31st is the end of the fiscal year. Mm -hmm. And that's my last paycheck. <laughs> wow. How does that feel? Terrifying. Really? <laughs> You're kidding, right? You're lying. Does it really no, feel terrifying? Really, yeah. It, you know, it's, it's, um, it's such an easy uh, kind of cushion to have an institutional framework where, mm. you know, I teach. I mean, I complain about it a lot, but it's still a great job because <laughs> it's, you know, 16 weeks vacation guaranteed every year. Although recently, in an academic sense, recently, like in the last two or three years, I discovered that we are actually, our salaries are for nine months. They're not for 12 months. Oh, interesting. And, and what they do is they kind of, it's almost like they escrow part of your salary each each pay period so that they can pay you over the summer. But mm -hmm. in fact, you're not paid for 12 months of work. I see. It's You're paid for nine months of work. So Interesting. I, never, I only understood that when I started having to get into whether I could really do this. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's great in, in the sense that I don't have anyone to answer to and I have, you know, nothing to prepare, no papers to grade. Um, but it is, it, it's scary in that it's, um, it's unknown. You know, I, I realize that the kind of work I do, I, mm -hmm. I can take as long as I like doing it. Cause I know that I have that regular income. Mm -hmm. So now I don't have that. Mm -hmm. I have to think more carefully. And, and a lot of the things that I would do, you know, like read people's work or write recommendation letters. It's like, of course I'm going to do that. That's, I kind of feel like that's part of my job. 
And mm. now I'm thinking, oh, well, I've got to be a little bit more selective about that. But, mm. I mean, I'll still do some of it, but um, I can't just say yes to everything because right. to use my time a bit more productively. I mean, it's not like I just mm. decided to retire without any plan. I mean, I, I do of have course. a plan. I just, it's just, I, I never, I hate that word retirement because it has this connotation of just going fishing. The end, um, yeah. Uh -huh. Why I just didn't want to teach anymore. Got it. Yeah. So I want to do all the other stuff. I want to write. I want to go to conferences. I want to engage with my intellectual community. I just yes. don't want to teach marketing majors how to read anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just I remember when when I was at Pace, um, like that was your constant complaint. It was just like, did you guys read it? <laughs> What's well, funny? I I don't know. And she's probably younger than you, but there was a student called Madison Ritland. Uh -huh. Okay, I don't know, don't she, know her. I, she lives in LA, actually. Um, mm. And she was in New York the other day. So she let me know she was coming and we had coffee. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. she was telling me how she used to get so depressed because in an English major, I think it was a Bronte class, mm. and she would come in and everyone would be talking, you know, like, did you read it? No, I didn't read it. Oh, and she said it was, she came into class, like really excited to talk about the work. And most of the students hadn't read it and they were just hoping they could get away with it. And right. those are majors. So yeah, it's right. kind of demoralizing, but. It is. So, I also just felt like I've kind of lost touch with the point of teaching English. Mm, what do you mean? I mean, literally, I'm just not, you know, it's, it's hard. I, I find it hard to, Im but I can't quite get a grasp of what it, what it means to have that major anymore because it understand. keeps changing yeah. and there are so many things that it's trying to do. Um, and there's a lot going on in the field of composition that I felt very antagonistic toward, which I would not want to be broadcast, but right, right. Like the well, idea well, it's racist what did you... people to write <laughs> standard American English. <laughs> I see, I see. Okay, okay. Well, what did you think that the English major was when you were, you know, becoming a professor for it? <laughs> well, I guess, you know, when I started, which is a long time ago, I really thought of it as just sort of extension of what I'd done, which is just you know, reading a lot of books and talking about them and learning how to think uh, critically. Okay. And, um, and mm -hmm. I, I think I went to a very traditional, my curriculum was very traditional, which was not unusual in the 70s, but it was, you know, we started with- Where were you at again? I went to, my undergrad was at Leeds University. Right, right. Yes. Uh -huh. um, and basically we started in Anglo-Saxon and went through chronologically mm -hmm. to about, 1940, a little mm -hmm. bit of modernism at the end, um, mm -hmm. and had single author courses on, you know, Milton, Chaucer, Shakespeare. Oh my God. Um, so I like, you know, I know the canon really well. Yes. Um, and I guess, I mean, one of the things when I first came to Pace in the early 80s, I used to always say like this, the US has a pretty significant literature of its own and yet we hardly ever seem to teach any of it why is that and right yeah, it was all very english english um but right. of course that's changed quite a bit now um, mm -hmm. but i think in the last few years what i've found difficult was to get any sense of an actual curriculum 
It was more like it's a collection of courses and it could be arranged in almost any sequence. Hmm. So, you know, you would teach, I would teach a course on the Bronte, say, to mm -hmm. people who didn't really know when the Victorian era was. Mm -hmm. Or I would teach 20th century literature to people who didn't really have any sense of, you know, what had led up to that. Like, mm -hmm. what were those writers working against? Hmm. Which, which is understandable, but it, and it's, and it's a difficult thing to, to accommodate everything that a whole department feels is important mm -hmm. um, for people to know but I mean my I guess my guiding principle is always just teaching people to read read in the sense of like read in an engaged way read critically mm -hmm. and not like every you know not worry about whether you like it or not mm -hmm. but be able to talk about something even if you didn't like it <laughs> you know? yeah um and I, right. and I I just I I don't know I the irony is the last couple of years like since I decided to leave I would mm -hmm. say like the last three semesters were really great <laughs> I had really good classes and really yeah. you know good students um, and and I always like the students as people I think that you know they're just very unprepared um, mm. so you had to kind of bring them up to speed at the beginning of every class you couldn't really build on anything mm-hmm you, know, you couldn't assume anything you just sort of start from scratch which is why I invented this class called intro to literary studies because mm -hmm. it just dawned on me one day like we all in the english department we all assume that someone else has taught the students to do x but in fact nobody has because we're all assuming somebody else did it so i said we we need to kind of codify this and say okay if you're majoring in this discipline mm -hmm. this is kind of the you know these are the tools these are the the this is the language that mm -hmm. you need to be familiar with these are the traditions mm -hmm. you know um i mean even the idea that there are different critical approaches to something was a mm -hmm. revelation to a lot you know that yeah you know a feminist reading is very different than a marxist reading or it could cross or you know whatever mm -hmm. it happens to be mm -hmm. yeah. yeah and there are no tas at pace it's just directly from the professors to the students in yeah, a it's all undergrad, so. much smaller setting. Um, you know, UCLA is a lot bigger as the public school. There are hundreds of students per class. And so the TAs take on about 40 students. And yeah. all of us as TAs, we just accept the fact that there will be more than 30% of students who have never written a paper before. So every single section I've ever led included a few weeks of just how to write a thesis, how to write a paper, you know, just basic stuff. We just kind of weave it in. Yeah. And, you know, it's we're in a quarter system, so the weeks fly by. They're 10 weeks. One and two of those weeks are like midterm, final. So they really zip by. And we have to make sure that they know how to do it because we're going to grade them on them, you know, yeah. so... Yeah, th there's a lot of pressure and burden, I guess, when it comes to that. And it also, it's like students who come to uh, an institution, like they come from all different kinds of backgrounds. Like, you know, English might be a second language. They, they might have been like living in Sweden all their lives, like, whatever it is. Um, or, you know, they just went to like a shitty school, like a shittier yeah. school in a shittier district. Yeah, that was that was very difficult. You'd have like 20, 25 kids in a class and a really broad range of everything, ability, 
background yes. uh-huh. experience. And yeah, there were some who already knew they've been very well trained at their high uh-huh. schools and they, you know, they come in knowing how to do college and right. then others who really, really have no, who are, very, who are smart, but just don't yet know the, the methodologies and the language. Um, uh-huh. And it was, I mean, a lot of my teaching was general ed courses, you know, the, those, to 11 to you know the lit courses that everyone had to take writing courses so right. I, I quite liked having that you know you'd have like 20 students and 10 different majors mm-hmm. and that could be quite interesting unless they were really resistant and kind of annoyed that they had to do this because you know, <laughs> they didn't see the point then it then it can be quite weird oh that's interesting when they say that they don't see the point of reading something or writing something i don't know like i guess it's a very utilitarian kind of, you know. Yeah. How can I use this? I yeah, but I, you know, what, you know what's hilarious? I felt that exact same way about math. <laughs> you know, when I was learning trig, like I, I was good at math until trig, like geometry and trig and, you know, calculus. Like when it hit geometry, I just they lost me completely. <laughs> I started fa- getting very low grades in math. I was good up to algebra. And then after that, it was like, none of this makes sense. I can't understand it, you know? Um, but that was my constant question to my teachers. I was like, how is like this cosine theta business gonna help me? <laughs> well, you didn't wanna be an engineer, I guess you would have known. But yeah, that I mean, that is not completely facetious for me. That that's kind of why I never went to an American university because I knew I'd have to study all those other subjects, and I really was just crap at everything in school except for English. They didn't force you to do those things when you were well, until you could until you were about fifteen, and then you could drop them because English education yeah. is like a like a pyramid. It's like you're constantly narrowing oh. until your last two years of high school. You're usually doing like just three subjects, and it's usually you know. It, my best friend at school was very unusual. He did double math and English but he was a real outlier. Usually you were like in the humanities or you were in the sciences. Mm -hmm. Um, So I failed math. I retook it. I failed it worse the second time. I Mm -hmm. I just (laughs) moved on. And I, yeah, I don't, I don't understand math at all, but I didn't. Yeah. And I would go to the library at Pace because the Pace library closed at 11 and I would just study for my GREs there for like six hours. And I studied my ass off. I still did. I got like 20th percentile for my math. Like it was just so bad. And I studied like crazy. I just couldn't. I can't. My I can't figure it out. It's a look language. Doctor Young. Yeah. Well, look at me now. I'm, you know, sitting in my closet. You know, fucking. I. You know, like you. It's it's interesting to me how, you know, you've done the whole like you've been in in this great school for like, for as long as I've been alive. And, you know, you have a life for yourself, you have a name, you have a career, you know, and yet you still feel this um, anxiety, like going into the, oh, yeah. the next phase of your life. And it seems like that shit never ends, you know? No, it doesn't. Mm. And I think, I mean, the, I guess my kind of trite response to that is that if you're complacent, then you're probably not going to get much done because I, I feel like the anxiety is just, I mean, I, I know myself well enough now, for example, like my writing process always involves a great deal of anxiety and 
like I go through these stages that I recognize now. And like I'll say, I'll write something, and then the first stage is like, why the hell did I ever say that? Oh. The second is, uh, there's no way I can do this. It's impossible. I'm going to tell them I can't do it. And then the third stage is like, oh, you know, it's like really painful, but I'm kind uh -huh. of seeing some way to do this. And then I kind of break through and think, okay, now I know how to do the work. And I've got to still do the work, but at least I can see that I can do it. Um, right. I said to someone the other day, I really don't like writing, mm -hmm. but I really love having written. I mm -hmm. love the feeling of finishing something and just like. Yes. Um, I mean, that in a way, it's been kind of weird with this book because, you know, I submitted it at the end of 2019. Yeah. And then, you know, it's like a year and a bit later it came out. Mm -hmm. And by then I was like, oh, I can't really remember what I said. And, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I've had this odd experience of people, mm -hmm. you know, most of my writing has been on Virginia Woolf. And I think it's, it's almost true to say I pretty much know everyone who's read my work. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, I know them. I know who they are, or at least yes. I know their names. Whereas mm -hmm. with this, it's like out there in the world and strangers are reading it. And I don't know who they are, and it's kind of interesting. It's, it's kind of disconcerting in some ways because I, I want to connect with them and say, "Well, can I can I help you with anything? Can I explain something that you're maybe not understanding?" So but, you'd say, yeah, like, no, this... I don't think the anxiety ever goes away. It's kind of productive. I mean, I I think it's 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 like people I've read about you know performers who still feel mm -hmm. stage fright, and yet you'd never oh, yeah. know it to see them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, it's, yeah. but if you're blasé about it, then you're probably not invested in it. Norm MacDonald, who is a comic I love, um, he's admired by a lot of comics because of his like brilliant sense of timing. Like he's so effortless with timing. It's just it seems like he just kind of just wandered into the room and just said the thing very naturally and organically. But all of it is premeditated, and he you know, he, he complains about nerves, you know, he's like, yeah. it's every, before every show, before every stage time, I always feel yeah. terrible nerves. And I was like, what? You know, I think, I mean, it probably is a cliche, but I think like comics usually are pretty tortured people. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what I started doing was um, instead of saying, oh, this this is nervousness, I just said, oh, this is adrenaline. I just kind of rephrased it or reframed it. I'm like, this is all yeah. adrenaline. Like I'm feeling the adrenaline yeah. before I'm getting up on stage. And I just. Does that help? Yeah. And, and um, I, yeah, no, I used to also get like, like arm, not pain, but like a numbness or like this mm. feeling on my left arm before stage time. And um, now that's gone away, but I used to get it when I first started. It was wow. like a lot. Yeah. It would have been a heart attack coming up. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Mild heart attack. <laughs> but yeah. it's true. I mean, in a, in a way, it's similar to how I, like, I, because I recognize now that part of what I always go through when I'm writing something is the feeling that I cannot possibly do it. It's like yes. I recognize that now. So I, it's like it, at some level of my brain, I say to myself, you always go through this. Right. You know, you'll, you'll get over it, even though it doesn't feel like you can. It's just um, part of the process now. It's, it's part of the process. And I recognize that. So it's like when it happens, I kind of am anticipating it almost. But how long um, did it still, take for you to? It's still a real feeling. Well, kind of, 
it depends what it is, but you know, it can. But like, at what point, like, cause you've been writing your whole life basically. Yeah. So like, at what age were you like, okay, this is, I do this every time. So now I just know this is just part of the journey of my yeah. writing. I think it's fairly recent that I recognized that. Really? Um, I mean, recent, like the last 10, 10 years or so. Okay. Yeah. Cause oh, I do, you know, and the, the, the other thing, and I don't know if you ever watch your, you know, playback of yourself, but sometimes if I have, for some reason, uh, I need to reread something that I mm -hmm. wrote a while back, I read it and I'm amazed. It's like, how did I do that? How did I, how did I actually, I can't imagine doing that. You know, like I read it and I kind of, it's not like I forget that I did it, but it's, I read it and I feel very distanced. It's almost mm -hmm. like I can look at it objectively and think, oh, yeah, that actually makes sense. And, mm -hmm. and then I think I couldn't do that today, but I probably mm. could because I'd have to go through that whole process. <laughs> and I think yeah. that's something, I mean, that I had a very difficult time with this biography until, and I, I don't remember quite when it happened, but there was a day when I real, you know, I, I spent so many hours just in despair, scribbling mm -hmm. on legal pads and just mm -hmm. feeling like it's all impossible until one day I realized that what I was trying to do was hold the entire thing in my head. Mm -hmm. And then I said to myself, you're an idiot, like mm -hmm. break it into bits. Mm -hmm. You don't need to, you know, and I had this very conscious moment of like, oh, I could just write this piece and mm -hmm. do that separately. And I don't have to worry about how it fits. I can, I can make the, the connection later when it's mm -hmm. there, but mm -hmm. that was a real breakthrough. Yeah. It's sometime during the process of writing the biography that I just, I remember it was probably in this room thinking to my, like the light coming on and thinking like, yeah. you don't have to, cause I was trying to kind of see how does each part relate to every other part. And it right. was impossible cause it's, yeah. it's like <laughs> 150,000 words. So yeah, no, those kinds of moments, those Eureka moments are like, that's problem solving for a writer, you know? That's and those are important moments, right? But it wasn't like it. It wasn't the problem that I recognized in, mm -hmm. in the sense that know. I hadn't. I hadn't set out to solve that problem, right? But at some level, I was, you know, I was being held back, held back by that problem. Yeah. And then yeah, it just kind of dawned on me. Oh, that's what yeah. I need to do. It's like yeah. part of us knows like what the problem is. It's just it's not on the forefront of my mind. It's like not in our consciousness, and we can't think it into words and name right. it and then do something about it actively. But it's like yeah. subconsciously you did understand or see this problem and you were mm -hmm. working it out anyway. Like, did you do something yeah. different or like, did you get up and drink a glass of water? Like, <laughs> was there something that took place that made you come to this realization at all? Or was it just like you were working in the flow and then you're like, okay, here it is. I think it was just, it was literally like a light coming on. I just yeah. kind of had this revelation like, oh, I can just work on this little piece. Mm -hmm. I can work on this year or this mm -hmm. relationship. And mm. it doesn't have to all fit perfectly now. Right. Can, and really what I, you know, I sometimes, I'm not a very regular like journal keeper. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I like to do is kind of set up a dialogue with myself. Like I mm -hmm. do a Q and a, mm -hmm. and one of the things I often will say to myself is say, 
well, okay, imagine that you're a student sitting in your office. What are you saying to them? And I'm like, always, like, break it down into parts. Don't let it overwhelm you. You know, you don't right. have to. It's not, it's not like taking a Polaroid. You don't have to press the shutter and, like, everything all is there all at once. Yes. It's gradual. And it's also, it's more like, you know, I say to, I mean, I used to say, like, you know, do you know how a movie is made? It's not, mm -hmm. it's not like the first thing you see on the screen was the first thing they shot. That might've been the last thing, but it's like somebody put it all together when all the bits were available. So I think it was something like that. It was just like mm. telling myself to do what I, you know, imagining myself as coming to my office and saying, I'm stuck. Yeah. Yeah. And so just, you, you know, coached yourself with me. your own advice. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's wild, isn't it? Like, we have the advice, <laughs> we have the answers, but we don't listen to it ourselves. Oh, no. We can well, hand the them out all day. I make is, it's like, you know, if someone I care about has a pain, I'm like, go to the doctor. Right. Whereas for me, myself, it's like, that's yeah, probably nothing. Never. <laughs> yeah. My foot is rotting off. It's fine. I never, I, I didn't like that foot. <laughs> it's okay. It can go. It'll, it'll heal itself somehow. <laughs> But, yeah, but I think yeah. it's, it was kind of to me. It was kind of similar. It's like we're all hypocrites. <laughs> we are. We are. That's why you know it's like like I'm becoming I'm becoming the thing that I didn't want to become when I was leaving New York, which is I'm becoming like that California kook that oh, is. Yeah. yeah. Can I just interrupt, Grace? Like, mm -hmm. is this the podcast? <laughs> yeah, this is the podcast. Oh, okay. So you're just yeah. gonna like pull pieces out of this and make something <laughs> it's, it's very scary because i'm you know being very wow. you yeah you you <laughs> like uh you like controlled environments yes mm, you like yeah. um under you like an itinerary an agenda oh, yeah. you, you like schedule and order yes yeah, i do i like i like those things too but i'm in my, my desk is covered in lists <laughs> Yes. Yes. I made a list this morning. Yeah. And I wrote you in at 5 p.m. That's <laughs> what I did. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I'm trying to undo a lot of that right now. See, like I'm, when, when you said we're all hypocrites, like I completely agree because, you know, it's like judgment is usually the thing that we're, we judge ourselves the most with right like any projected external judgment is like mm -hmm. for instance like i was dealing with the word stupid last week i was like this word stupid like what does it mean it just means i think they're stupid you know because they don't know the thing that i know is that stupidity you know what is stupidity what is stupid you know and i was thinking about this because um this woman like i was listening to her like meditation session tara brock and she was like most of our society in a capitalist world it emphasizes the critical thinking the analytical thinking the hard sciences the stem fields that's what they uphold and praise so she was like imagine how many people in the world feel stupid because they are not oriented in that way and i was like oh my god like i feel so emotional right now <laughs> And I realized I think of myself, <clears throat> excuse me, as stupid. Like I realized that that's a core belief of mine. I think I'm a fucking moron, you know? Mm. And um, it doesn't mean that I am. It just means that 
like I was made to feel that way and that I, I've come to believe that that is who I am. Like it, it's just like in my subconscious embedded there. Like it's like uh, unmovable. And that is in spite of everything, right? Like great undergraduate education, Fulbright, master's, PhD. And I still am like, you said it yourself. You were like, I'm an idiot. Why don't I break it up? Yeah. Right? It's like, it's it's a meaningless it's word, deep. actually. Yeah, uh, as you're talking, it's I, I'm thinking how what came to my mind is how I'm, and I think this is also quite common. Is like all the praise in the world means nothing compared to like the the one mistake or the one person who says no. Yeah. Like, well, like you yeah. said, like you're stupid. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. I, I spent four years working on this. A book once and there's a it's an edition of one of wolf's novels and when it was published i found this like a typo unforgivable that was, right that was all i focused mm -hmm. it was like it was so stupid i thought how yeah. could i have missed that because yeah. it's a, it's meant to be a scholarly edition of the book so it's like super carefully edited mm -hmm. and i went over it a thousand times mm -hmm. i know how it happened but yeah yeah, it, yeah. it's like Yes, it's like you cannot, well, it's interesting that you say that, you know, with your recent PhD and all your achievements and you, you know, you've published books and you've translated books, but you feel stupid because of a certain context. Mm -hmm. But I feel like that is something in ourselves, like mm -hmm. people who are like that, because yeah. I, it's like, I'm very distrustful of praise. Yes. You know, it's kind of, you know I think. And I used to I used to have that fantasy in the classroom that one day there mm -hmm. would be a student who would just say, Yeah, you're just full of shit, you know, you know what you're talking about and actually like call me on something. But it I don't I could never really imagine what that might be. Right. But it was this sort of not even a fear, it was just like a fantasy I had that, you know, yeah. someone will see through me. And I yeah. I always found that position of authority very uncomfortable because yeah. You know, a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah. but i think what you said is it's it's about going back to what you said about the meditation person that you were listening to is mm -hmm. there is this emphasis on certain kinds of knowledge as being valued over <sighs> others the only reason why my brain is telling me that i'm a failure and i'm an idiot right now is because i'm hearing a lot of praise and mm -hmm. my brain will do everything it can to right. defend itself against that praise. Well, it's also a defense against, like, I think, you know, being found out for the fraud that you are, that we are. <laughs> like, yeah, we don't know then, anything. But then externally, of course, you know, someone would look at you, look at me and think, wow, you know, that that is a success, that an achievement. I mean, you yes. think about how many students have this aspiration to publish a book or to translate something and you've done it and you will go on doing it. It's, you know, it's, it's all kind of, relative when you do you know yeah. um bo burnham have you watched mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i have yes. a feeling you probably don't like him right but no he's very talented he's I not just, my cup of tea i find him uh, immensely talented though yeah I, yeah his stagecraft is incredible i've just my kids yeah. have introduced me to him but I, when you were talking yeah. about you know suicide he's yeah he's very funny about that <laughs> yeah a lot of comics just, are funny about suicide because yeah. they think about it all the time yeah yeah mm. Well, and also it's it's like such a taboo thing, but it, you know sometimes it kind of makes sense. Like, all writers think like, about I, it. I liked yeah. his line of like, "I'd like to kill myself, but like not permanently, just for, like, <laughs> a year." Yeah. 
And I think, yeah, no, that, that makes a lot that's of really sense. good. That's really good. You know, Mark Mark Marin, who's a comic I love. I love his podcast more, but he says, like, you know, whenever I thought about suicide, I'd be like, yeah, but like, you know, I still have to get back at that guy, you know? So like <laughs> like a sense of vindictiveness keeps yeah, him alive, keeps him going. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah, like, um, but I, I hear what you're saying, and it's like interesting to me how, you know you know, you're somebody I consider a teacher, like a mentor, you know, you're somebody that I, I look up to in a lot of ways. In fact, like your classes, I took two of your classes, you know, like the personal essay class and uh, the Wolf seminar. Oh, and I, t I think I took one more, but um, yeah, like I, I always loved your feedback. Like you were very um, good at giving feedback and like kind of noting like a specific thing that, like a student is good at, you know, like you're like, oh, you're very good at, you know, at like capturing emotion, you know, that was like one note that I still remember. And oh, I was like, oh, okay, like, yeah, I was like, I'll, st I'll stick with that, you know, I'll kind of intuit using that, using my emotion as a navigation tool then, you know, that's something I wouldn't have thought of unless I received that feedback, you know? And I think in that, in that regard, professors and teachers are invaluable, right? Like to, uh, any society, you know, like really to tell them like, oh, this is something you're good at, so stick with that. Because that's not something that we see on our own. All we see yeah. is the negative voices in our heads <laughs> telling us to go off ourselves. That's all we hear and see, you know? Yeah. Hmm. And, I, and I loved your Wolf Seminar because in that class, you know, we read a lot of books like whole books, which was like, you know, for an undergraduate, it's like, well, we're going to read a whole, like a bunch of whole books, like this semester. Um, of course, when you're a grad student, it's like, we have to read like five books this week, right? But uh, I really, like to this day, it's like a book that's been very influential. My favorite book in that course was Three Guineas. And I love uh, that book so much because, you know, Wolf was so good at articulating the necessity of feminism, mm -hmm. you know, and the hypocrisy of the patriarchy. Like she was just very good at articulating that and illustrating that very clearly. And it just like, you know, that kind of a, like woke the feminist in me, really, that book. Do you still, did you still teach that yeah, book? I did, yeah. The, the, my very last class was a Wolf Seminar um, last mm. fall and I did teach that. And it was, it was great because there were some students who had sort of signaled early on that they thought, you know, Wolf's feminism was very white, and very passe. And I, mm -hmm. and I said, just kind of, let's just bear with it. And, <laughs> you know, I'll, and I said, you know, she's writing in the 1930s and clearly there are limitations, but, you know, yes. rather than, rather than see what her deficiencies are, is there, you know, let's read her and see what she's saying in that context. And also, is there anything you know, salvageable, right. worthwhile now. Exactly. And I think, I think pretty much everyone in the class was very receptive yeah. by the end. It was, that was good. And yeah, we read a lot of books. Um, yes. I, I, org I organized that class into sort of clusters because that was one thing about teaching on Zoom was I did way more preparation and work than I would ever do. Because in a classroom, yeah. you can not, I was going to say you can wing it, but I mean that you yeah. can kind of respond on the fly to things. Mm -hmm. You can move mm -hmm. very smoothly from, you know, one part of a conversation mm -hmm. to another. And you can say, oh, well, mm -hmm. you know, we'll dwell on that and we'll pick up that next time. Yes. 
but I felt like with the remote classes, when everyone's lives was, you know, they were quite um, uncertain, that I wanted to structure it also so that people who, for whatever reason, might have to drop out for a couple of weeks will be able to pick right back up and find out, yes. you know, they would know where they were. So, so I had these, I don't know if I'm going to remember them, but it was like war, women. Mm. I mm -hmm. can't remember the other clusters, but I, so the works were all sort of jumbled mm -hmm. up in different orders. And I had like two weeks where we would read maybe a novel and some short stories and some critical mm -hmm. essays. And then like three guineas was with, you know, a much older piece or so yeah. it, was, it was kind of fun. Um, yeah. And a, and of course, everyone is in their own room, on their own. So it was sad, <laughs> but it, it's yeah. The thing about teach, I think, going back to what I was saying at the beginning, is that feeling of having sort of lost my way as a teacher. Is like there are moments like what you just said is very lovely to hear, and you know, the other students who've said they remember things from certain classes mm -hmm. or things I said or discussions we had, mm -hmm. and that's all great and. Mm -hmm of course, makes it very worthwhile. But it was overall, I, I started, and this is kind of connected to what you were saying about the devaluing of the humanities. It was like, you feel like you're just sort of in this vacuum where you think this is important and you're trying to, you know, convey that mm. to other people, but there's no real support institutionally or, you know, that you see just everything dwindling and resources being put to all kinds of other things. Um, well, what do you think the answer is to that then? Well, I think one thing, and this I've been talking in my own like wolf community a lot about this is, is there's a, there's a real disjunction between the academy and the, the intellectual world outside. I mean, people do read a lot. I think there are plenty of smart people who love to read and talk about ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think academics have just stopped talking to them and we just sort of talk to each other. <laughs> and a lot of it is to do with the language that we use, which is, I mean, yes. I, I actually enjoy high theory, yeah. but I treat it, I treat it almost like a hobby. It's like right. this little kind of thing that me and some aficionados can do yeah. and talk about. And, mm -hmm. you know, when, but I still recognize it's, it's, it's kind of humorous when people talk about interrogating the intersection between and like, well, you're not mm. really interrogating it. Are you You're just exploring it or asking a question? Right. Yeah. Um, but the language that has become a kind of code of entry to that club. Yeah. I think that can be, that can be very um, off putting to people who just want to read, read something without being made to feel stupid. <laughs> that, that, I think that's <laughs> a huge point. Terms. Yeah. First of all, I think that's, something that's changing like right now like i'm transferring my dissertation into my first book right and we we were given this book by her last name's hag i can't remember her first name but she wrote a book called revise like i think yale university press published it and i'm i'm having a tough time with the book but one of the things the first chapter was like get rid of jargon it's like you want your book to be accessible so remember like you know reading i don't know like judith butler it's like Fucking, it's like, oh, let me read the most impossible thing, like write in an impossible way. Then you're gonna get a tenure track job. Like it's been like that. It's like the more obscure yeah. you are, it's like, oh, maybe he's like onto something that I just don't know, you know? So, but now it's the opposite. It's like write clearly and directly yeah. and write in a way that accommodates the reader, you know? So that's, that's sort of changing like right now as we speak. And the other thing is, it's, 
it's very it's also very political and i was just like man we on the on the left we progressives have really you know designed a kind of wall for ourselves and we're sitting on the top and really congratulating ourselves for knowing words like intersectionality mm. and blah 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 right like it's like <laughs> or even words like you know toxic positivity right it's like what it's like yeah. do you know how to talk to your uncle who has no legs because he lost them in the war and is a hardcore republican do you know how to talk to him yeah. you know and the reason why is because like they don't want to feel like idiots when they're talking to somebody who is a progressive and it's like we well that is something we have to check i feel but at the same time there is the importance of language and yeah. what language does in order to communicate complex ideas and whatnot well that's yeah that's what i was going to say i'm kind of hesitant to just say oh jargon's all bad and it's you know exactly it's yes stupid because i do think you know complex ideas sometimes demand complex expression yes absolutely um, but there is a kind of in-crowd aura to some of the language mm -hmm. that we use, which I do think mm -hmm. it creates a circle that, that can't be penetrated by outsiders. And I'm and, hearing but what's, that more and yeah. more from academics of like, yes, we've yes. got to be able to talk to people more. And we, sh I mean, as teachers, we should be able to do that, certainly. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, the great irony is like, let's say, for instance, like we do use a word like intersectionality, which isn't that big of a word, you know, it's, it's out there. Yeah. But like, let's say we use it in a book and like, we want to explain it, right? Add like, no, let's use the word neoliberalism, right? Let's say we want to use the word neoliberal, put it in a book, but you know, we want to explain it for the reader to accommodate them. So we'll add a footnote. Is the reader going to read that fucking footnote? No, they're not, yeah, right? explain it. Just explain <laughs> it in the text, yeah. Well, right, then, right. You know, intersectionality is a good, because like you and I, if we hear that word, we know, because we've read a lot, all those books. But yeah. for someone new or outside of that field, you don't need to use that word. You can just sort of talk about, oh, you know, it used to be that people would rank, like, what's worse, racism or sexism. But, you know, now people think more about how you can't really separate them and that, just yeah. explain it, you know, yeah. and that is called, you know, academics call that intersectionality, but it's, right. it's like this whole huge thing about critical race theory. It's so frustrating because yeah. it's such an easy thing to attack because it, it sounds like just a bunch of, you know, woke jargon, but actually, yes. you know, of course it's, it's motivated by a sense of history and, you know, being transparent about yeah. what has really happened. Yeah. But yeah, I, I agree. I think there's this sort of shooting ourselves in the foot on the left has, has become something that's pervasive. Can we talk about your book before we wrap up? Yeah, um, we sure. You talked about it a little bit, but I want to hear more about it. I kind of told the story of this in the somewhere. It was literally yeah. it for years, you know, I'm like where I'm sitting now, I'm looking at all my like Wolf and Bloomsbury books. Yeah. Uh -huh. And every so often I would think, oh, it's really weird there's no biography of Clyde Bell because there's biographies of like all the mm. other people. Sure. Um, and so one day I thought that and I thought, I'll oh, just Google biography yeah. of Clyde Bell and something popped up as mm -hmm. forthcoming, but like years, years in the future on Amazon. So I have a friend in publishing in London. I emailed her and I said, do you know anything about this? And she, she said, yeah, I can find out for you. And it turned out that it was contracted in like 2004, but the guy never delivered the manuscript. 
oh, but wow. it was in like the internet system so it was announced as a forthcoming book like but never came out hmm. so then i i just thought you know that that would be kind of interesting to see if i could do that so i started yeah. just asking around and and then i i i know you know people because i naively thought oh i've worked on wolf all my life so I'll, this won't be much of a stretch. Mm. <laughs> so anyway, so that's how I got into it. It was kind of filling a gap, but then I really had to teach myself a lot about art, which was interesting, but you know, a big learning curve. Um, that is a big but one. He's the really, mm. the, the last sort of major Bloomsbury figure that didn't have a biography. So, and mm. um, as I was writing it, I began to realize that, because of that, because there hadn't been much known about him on his own, mm -hmm. I needed to sort of lay the foundation for, it's a very traditional biography in the sense mm. that it takes him from the beginning to the end of his life. Um, and if people want to go into that and maybe develop one aspect or look at more, you know, they could do that. But I felt like I didn't want to write a biography with a particular angle. Hmm. It was just sort of telling his story. Right. Like, here it is. This was his life. Yeah. yeah. This and is it's this been person. kind of nice because a lot of people who've read it have said, oh, you know, I had no idea that he, you know, like he came to the U.S. in the 1950s. And, mm -hmm. and he had, you know, he had a lot of affiliations beyond the beyond just being Virginia Woolf's brother-in-law and Vanessa's yeah. husband. You know, he kind of struck out on his own. Why do you think people read biographies? Hmm. I think that um, they read biographies because they like gossip. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's such a popular genre now. I have a really hard time with it, though. I, I ended up being quite anti-biography by the end because hmm. I think that one thing I was really committed to was not saying anything that I didn't have evidence for or a source for, not really evidence, but because mm -hmm. when I'm reading a biography, sometimes – it irritates me when the biographer says something like, Grace must have been feeling X. And I think, well, hmm. maybe, but how do you know? Right. Unless she actually says that in a letter somewhere. Right. Or I was reading one a while ago and it said, you know, Simone de Beauvoir crossed the room and put her glass down on the windowsill. And, and I thought, okay, well, how do you know that? Like, <laughs> maybe maybe she describes it in a diary or a letter or something, but. So that was one thing. I wanted to only say things. I would, did not want to speculate. I just wanted right. to say what was there. And that is something when I'm reading a biography, I mean, I, I really enjoy a good biography. Like mm -hmm. I just read a um, biography of Adrienne Rich, which I really enjoyed. And mm -hmm. um, I just finished a book called Ninth Street Women, which is about mm -hmm. um, American women artists of the 50s uh, mm -hmm. who are abstract expressionists. And that was really fantastic. Mm. Um, but sometimes I'll read one and I just think, you know, you've made a lot of this up <laughs> in the sense that you just could have invented it to make it more readable and right. cut corners or, you know, conflated things that were actually separated by 18 months. Um, but I think people read biographies for the same reason we like to get to know, you know, we just were interested in other people. Um, yeah. Yeah. My favorite kind are the ones that, are um, biographies that give a sense of the, the context in which the person lived. 
Mm. You know, not not just about their inner life, but actually what was going on in the world around them. Mm. Yeah. yeah, like the wars or the yeah. laws or the government or okay. Yeah. yeah. But I I like that you uh, <laughs> did say like well it is gossip. You know, it's it's a yeah, form of tabloid. All, all knowledge is gossip. <laughs> It's like <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting theory. I like that theory actually. Yeah, it's, like, it's like no matter how much we abstract things and project them and turn them into this intellectual discourse, you know, at the end of the day, it's just like I mean, we want to be yeah, like we want to be recognized, you know, we want to be heard, we want to express. It's really all it is. And then hope, as you say, hope that somebody reads it, somebody catches it, you know, that it resonates. Yeah, whatever. I think that getting away from the idea that, you know, we have, we have the answer or the, I mean, I know this is a very cliche kind of post-structuralist thing, like, you know, the truth with a capital T. Uh-huh. It's, and, and I think that's, you know, going back to what you were saying about Three Guineas of Wolves before, it's like this one of the things that attracted me to her is her sort of, it's this provisionality. It's like, let's think of it this way. It's not like saying you must think this, right. but like, l let's turn it around and look at it this way. What do you think yeah. of that? And it's, yeah. it's sort of dialogic. It's not, you know, didactic. Yes. Um, and that's the kind of writing I like best. Mm. Um, and I think that the, the genre of biography, I think one of the things that frustrates me about it is that sense of, um, being told this is what the person was like rather than this is my version of that person. And maybe that, I mean, that's, I can't think of another writer than Wolf who has, I mean, she must have about 30 biographies or biographical works. It's as if, you know, people just keep turning her life around in the light and it catches different facets. Um, so, yeah, but one can say that about any individual, right? Like, I mean, that's any yeah. person, really, you know? Um, I like how you say it's my version of this person. That's this biography on Bell. Yeah, I think it, that's it how it is for, for everybody, like any author, yeah. like any filmmaker yeah. who makes a, a biopic, you know, it's their version of it, their interpretation. Because yeah. inevitably, yeah. you're going to leave you have to leave things out. I remember yeah. there was a there was a point I got to where I was really struggling with writing it, and mm -hmm. I would say to people, "Ask me any question about Clive Bell, and I can tell you like where he was on this day or what." But to kind of determine how to make that a narrative, mm -hmm. that's really difficult because obviously you can't just write a list of you know all right. the days you know in this like yeah, no. millions of words long <clears throat> so you have to make selections and you have to emphasize some things and de-emphasize others so yeah it could it could be done and i mean i would probably do it entirely differently if right. i started it now you know i could do it all again and it would be a different book but um and people who read parts of it when i was writing it used to get frustrated with me because they would say well what do you think he, and i would say it's, yeah. it's irrelevant i yeah, you know, it's not about me. It's it's about yeah. my subject. So yeah, you know, wait wait for my autobiography, then I'll tell you what I think. Right, but to them, you're the you're the author, right? right? And so yeah, they, they want to be kind of guided. And what should I be thinking about this? Exactly. Like, no, yes. That's that's up to you. I give right. You, that's I not give my you business. The material, mm -hmm. and you do something yeah. with it. Yeah. Boundaries. And think, yes. And yes. The, you know, that's to me that 
that's very familiar to like teaching a writer like Virginia Woolf because the frustration that many students experience with a modernist writer like that is like, what am I supposed to focus on? <laughs> What's the point? What's important? And I would say, well, that's up to you. It's it's going to be right. Different. It's going to be different now than if you read it ten years from now. It's going to be different if you're somebody else. So she's a very rich writer. Like, yeah, the way she writes is very rich. And um, I remember asking you this, like, when I came back down from a mushroom trip, I was like, Wolf must have taken some shit. What was she <laughs> taking? And you were just like, well, she was on a lot of medication and some of them yeah. were probably hallucinogenic. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And yeah. I was just kind of like, why? I was kind of I was like, why didn't any of my professors at Pace, when I was reading all these modernists and like, you know, learning about existentialism and going to MoMA and like looking at modernist art and da da da. Like, why didn't anybody ever say that drugs were a big part of this? You know, like <laughs> I feel like that should have been said almost. It's like on the one hand, yeah, like the ego gets obliterated when you see nuclear weapons or mass destruction, like with these kinds of weaponry. Okay, fine, yeah. But you know, I feel like a lot of these artists had other substances that were able yeah, to... Well, Otis Huxley was very into that mescaline. Yes, LSD. yes. Yeah, Clive Bell's granddaughter, who's a writer herself, she said she was very happy to learn that her grandfather used coke. Because <laughs> I have <laughs> reference to that. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, not my drug of choice at all, but, you know, yeah. it does. it is known to induce psychosis, I hear, <laughs> for people who are addicts. Um, but, yeah, I, I was just like, that. I feel like that should have been mentioned. But... Um, yeah. T.S. Eliot, he used drugs. Yeah, and it's like, it's almost as if, as if like, you know, once you see that other side, like what they saw or went to where they went, then everything that they, all their products make sense. All the things that they mm -hmm. created make sense. You know, like I was like reading the waves. I was like, now I can read the waves. Whereas <laughs> for like 15 years, I was trying to and I couldn't. I don't think Wolf actually needed drugs though. I mean, she she did take a lot of medications, but... I think her yeah. mind was such that yeah. she had uh, a visionary sense. She was already kind of, yeah, touched yeah. by the mm -hmm. stuff. Or the portal was already open, we'll put it that yeah. way. Yes. No, I do yes. think that. Yeah. But one thing I will say is, like, you know, you're a good example of a man who is a feminist. Because increasingly in our society, uh, there are men who declare I'm a feminist and all the women go running the other way. Cause they're like, he's a, he's a sick creep, you know? <laughs> Andrew Cuomo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's like, the reason why I say you're a good feminist, like you're a good example of a feminist is because you read about women all the time, all the time, you know? And it's like, that to me is a feminist. It's like, <laughs> I, I consider women interesting human beings worthy of reading about and writing about. Like that is like, all right, you know? Well, that, that could be a whole other podcast, like my, how did I end up given my background as a Jesuit boarding school boy <laughs> reading Virginia Woolf and spending my life writing about her? Yes, <laughs> it's like, what is, yeah. what is the meaning of my trajectory? But thank you, that was very nice. To yeah, yeah. Well, we'll wrap up here. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Grace, it's great talking to you and lovely to see you too. Thank you.